We're going to be going into Hebrews. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 5 today. If you're new with us or you haven't been with us here for a while, I just want to let you know we're going to be digging into the Scripture, into the Word of God. We really want to be in His Word. We want to be knowing His Word. We want to be uh, enriched by His Word, washed by His Word, to be uh, consuming and consumed by His Word. It's it's so important. And I, I think the Lord has really been releasing a grace for us as a people in this hour to really dive into his word. So if you've been experiencing that and you've been growing in your hunger for the, for the word, it's it's something that the Lord is doing right now. And so we're going to keep pressing into it. Back last month, uh, we started, I guess this is a series <laughs> that we've been in, focusing on the presence of the Lord and uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the temple, and leading on to into uh, the priesthood uh, and uh, the high priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. And it's been an incredible trajectory that the Lord has had us on, looking kind of back and forth across the history through the Bible, seeing this thread of what God has done in his people uh, to learn how to host his presence and to bring into greater and greater realities who Jesus is and who we are as believers in Christ and the responsibility and the opportunity we have to function in his authority as kings and priests. And so it's been a pretty wild ride. If you haven't been with us, I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and start looking at, uh, at our sermons from um, talking about um, not just any mountain, I think is what we, we titled that, uh, that first message, where we recognized that, that God was calling us to proclaim, Give me my mountain. Uh, reaching back to what Caleb declared as they came back into uh, into the land of Canaan and were taking that, uh, the promised land. He came in and he declared, give me my mountain. That was a that was something that was was released here uh, when the Chavas were with us. Uh, and uh, that was just something that really resonated with us. And that has kicked off a whole slew of, of sermons here now, uh, really calling us to understand the importance of of the mountain and who we are in the Lord. So I'm going to pick back up here in Hebrews. Last week we spent a good amount of time in Hebrews, and I had kind of hinted towards Melchizedek, given a brief overview of who Melchizedek was. We're going to dive into that a bit here today. So there's going to be some overlap this week with last week. Uh, So just bear with me, because I think the Lord has some interesting things for us to uncover in not only relationship to last week, but actually going all the way back to where we started at Hebron and Abraham there at Hebron with the Lord. So, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, and we are going to start at verse 1. We're going to do 1 through 10 here. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related, related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son, Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, 
If you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, you're not familiar with who Melchizedek is, you may have come across this and said, what does that even mean? Priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It seems very off the wall. It seems kind of out of left field. But this is a very strategic statement that God is making here, and we're going to go and uncover that today. And this is actually a reference from um, from Psalm 110. Um, so it's a, it's a prophetic psalm, and it speaks about Christ, the, the Messiah. And this is who the author of Hebrews is referencing right here. Now, in verse 7 we go on and says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Part of what we find here in Hebrews, over and over again, is that the author is talking about a a transition in covenants. He's talking about a transition in realities, a revealing of who Christ is, and he does an excellent job of disclosing, here's the pattern that's been set forth in the earth by God so that we would understand as a culture, because he's speaking to Hebrews, as a culture and a community, what God has designed in so that when the real thing comes forward, we would have an understanding of the fullness and the incredible importance of the one that all of this has been a foreshadow of, and that's Jesus. Hebrews summed up is, Jesus is better. That's the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's the better way. He's the only way. He is, he is the hope that we have uh, we've been hoping for all this time. Everything that we have, we have set into place has been pointing towards him, and now he has come and he has fulfilled. And look at what promise we now have that we can walk in. That's ultimately the message of Hebrews. And this author goes into some really interesting depths here. So here he kind of tees it up with Melchizedek, and then he spends some time talking about some other things, but he comes back around to it again to disclose the importance of Melchizedek. So we're going to pick that up now in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. This is just good stuff. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. We've been talking quite a bit for a while now about you've got to pay attention to the names of people. You should pay attention to the names of people you know and your own name. But when you're reading the Bible, you should absolutely pay attention to the names of people because oftentimes they tell you a lot about who that person is and about the story of their life. So first his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. There's not a lot that's spoken about him in, in the Scripture. We'll go, we will today go back into Genesis and read that account. 
But there's not a whole lot that shows up before. Actually, there's nothing that shows up before him, and there's nothing that shows up after him. And this is the next time we hear about him other than that reference in Psalms that says, I call you priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendants from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say, this is the way God thinks, right here. This is the way God thinks. He thinks in generational lines. He thinks in family lines. He thinks about promises that don't come to pass for generations. It's still a promise fulfilled if if it comes to pass in your family line. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. All right, so we've spent a lot of time over the past few weeks talking about the priesthood of Levi and how the Levitical priests needed to be, uh, be the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant. They were the only ones who were authorized to do this. And we found out what happened when they put the Ark on the ox cart, remember? It was not supposed to happen. And they, they set themselves into a bad situation by doing that. They were actually following what the Philistines had done when they were sending the ark back to Israel to get it out of there because it was wreaking havoc on their people. And so David, whose heart was so committed to the Lord and wanting to bring the presence of the Lord back into a place of honor as he established his throne there in Jerusalem, he misstepped, even with his good intentions. Good intentions don't get you there. You have to have the follow-through. And he actually adopted the way of the Philistines for carrying the ark. And God wasn't going to allow that to happen. And we find that Uzzah lost his life in that situation. When David ultimately went back and recognized what he was supposed to do, he did have Levites come then and carry the, carry the ark of the covenant, as was prescribed by the Lord, and so he, set, he went back into that place of obedience and reverence and honor of the Lord in how he carried out what God had called him to do. Now, we talked about how that was a sobering recognition and realization for him as a king who had been intimately familiar with God in the presence of God. But he also had to learn that there was a right way that God had set in, in there that he had to be obedient to to, to actually carry and host the presence of God as he was supposed to. When all those things lined up, we see an incredible outpouring of grace that takes place over Israel as the ark is brought in. And we see David, I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself here, as David, uh, when he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem, puts on the linen ephod of the priest, and he takes on a priestly role in bringing that ark in there. Like Melchizedek, he's functioning as king and priest. Jesus is found in the line of David. 
king and priests. All right, so we're going to go back now into Genesis, and we're going to read this account because it's important for us to be familiar with it, find it in our Bibles, highlight it, mark it up, put our notes in the margins, all that kind of stuff, because we really want to uh, be consuming the, the Word. And you're going to come back across these things someday as you're reading through Genesis, and you'll remember, oh yeah, something important here. I learned something about that. All right, so go to Genesis 14. We're going to read all of Genesis 14. Now, just prior to Genesis 14, we find uh, the account of how Abraham and Lot kind of went their separate ways. Remember this? They, they realized there wasn't enough, there's not enough space here for the two of us. We've got to part ways and figure out what we're going to do. And so Lot goes down towards Sodom in the, in the plains of the Jordan there. And, and Abraham uh, ultimately is told by the Lord to, to head to uh, Hebron. And that's where he camps out. We've learned a lot about what takes place from Hebron. So he's, he's in Hebron at this time. And this is his place of residence right now. He doesn't own anything, but he's staying in that land. And it becomes a very important place for him. We find God covenanting with him there. And we find uh, this situation that we're about to talk about take place there. Ultimately, what it is, is uh, Lot and his, his household are going to be carried away because of... Um, kings that are coming in and, and invading the land. So let's read that right here. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedilorimer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedilormer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedilormer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh, uh, Kiriathaim and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Okay, what does that mean? It's a mouthful, and I'm sure I murdered all of those names. But I heard a pastor say one time, you just plow on through like you know what you're doing. So, so if, if there's some theologians out there that said, hey, you missed that one, my apologies. All right. What all that means is this. There were four kings that were from outside the region. I think it's to the northeast is really where they're coming from. And they are the ones who are um, kind of getting tribute from these five kings that are referenced here, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their friends, those five kings in total, didn't like what was going on. For 12 years, they were subject to them. In the 13th year, it says they rebelled. Um, And then you see these other four kings that come back and they say, all right, enough's enough. We're actually going to come in with a campaign and we're going to wipe you guys out because you're you're rebelling against us. And so they actually come down and they encircle them and, and go through this campaign of defeating all these peoples around them, and now they've come to do battle with them on the, at, there at the Valley of Sidim. And so 
if you just think about that, you've now got battle-tested army armies coming in against these guys that are rebellious, and they're about to get whooped, and they do. Okay, so here we go. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's uh, nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay. So they got whooped, right? This battle-tested army and proven army comes through and they just, they take the whole thing. Everybody flees to the hills and falls into tar pits and all this. This is, this is not a good situation for the region, Right? And in the process of this, because Lot has has moved in there to Sodom, he's carried off away as well. So this is the dog in the fight for Abraham. Okay? So he gets drawn into this at this point. Now, we pick it up here. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. So, if you remember, he's living peaceably in this land. He's, he's in their land. It's not his land. And he's, he's made allies with these people. The favor of the Lord is upon him, and the grace of God is with him. And so he is, he is someone who is valued in that place. And so, he's not just... Some guy. He's someone that is respected and revered here. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 313, sorry, 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Pause. Abram has allies in the area. He just had his nephew kidnapped by these kings who just defeated the kings in the region there. They were decimated. His relative is carried away, and he reaches out to his allies and says, Hey guys, can you come up with me? And he brings with himself his 318 men from his own household. And then he goes and defeats these four kings who just took the land. Is Abram known as a warrior? At any other point in his history, have we heard of him defeating armies? No. He's a wanderer in a strange land. He doesn't own anything here. And he calls up these three other guys and says, Hey, let's go, I gotta go get Lot back. And he goes and defeats these four kings. That five kings couldn't. They couldn't even hold their own ground. 
He pursued them, and he pursued them far. If you look at where Dan is, Dan's about 130-some-odd miles away as the crow flies from Hebron. And then he goes beyond that up north of Damascus even further. So, I mean, he's, he is far away from where his, his home base is. That's not even his home. But he's far away from this with these guys, and they attack them there, and they get everything and start bringing it back. Don't miss the enormity and the significance of the, this event. It's not like he just went out and, hey, give that back to me, and that was it. No, these guys had defeated the kings in that region there and taken away the spoils, and he went and retrieved all of that and his family and, the, and that household and all of their possessions and is bringing it back. So if, if you look at this from a conquest standpoint, Abram is a mighty man in this region now. Are you getting the picture? This is a big deal. So now he's coming back. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, defeating them. Not going and saying, hey, can you give me the stuff back? Defeating them. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Okay. I'll, I'll hold off on that part right there. Then Melchizedek. So this is where Melchizedek shows up, folks. Okay? Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Think about what you know from Hebrews. He is a type and shadow of Christ, and he brings out bread and wine to Abram as he's returning from what he has conquered. Brings out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now this, this passage right here is almost parenthetical. So think about it. It starts with, as he's coming through this valley, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. Now, he has an encounter with king of Sodom on the other side of this parenthetical passage, but then suddenly, Melchizedek shows up. Nothing is said about him before this, right? All of a sudden, he just shows up. King of Salem's here. Here's some bread and wine for you. What's happening? Where are they? Have you ever thought about that? Where, where are they? This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Okay. It says here, <clears throat> He came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. You might know this by a different name. The Kidron Valley. Does anybody know where the Kidron Valley is? Yeah, the Kidron Valley is just east of Jerusalem. The ancient city of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, is just east of there, and it flows down towards the Jordan, and it's a big, long valley, but when we talk about the King's Valley, the Kidron Valley, we're really talking about that area right outside Jerusalem. And this is where they are. Who comes out to meet him there? Melchizedek. What is he the king of? 
Salem. Salem is also an ancient name for what we call today Jerusalem. So here comes the king priest because they're meeting out here, and what does he do? He brings him bread and he brings him wine. They're right in the backyard of Jerusalem. And here's Abraham meeting him here. Now, we've been talking about Hebron and Jerusalem and how David started in Hebron and then he also, then he went and he landed in Jerusalem. He established his throne in Hebron when he was king over Judah. But when he became king over all of Israel, he went to Jerusalem, right? And here is Melchizedek, king of Salem, meeting with Abraham and blessing him there and blessing God and having bread and wine with Abraham. And Abraham tithes to him in that location. God cares about locations, folks. He cares about what he's doing. There's big things that are taking place in this exchange beyond beyond the interactions that they're having, which are very significant. The significance of the locations is also important to us and is important for us for our understanding of what God is doing here. And it's in that place where Abraham tithes a tenth of all the spoils that he brought back to Melchizedek because Melchizedek blessed him there. Here's somebody who is a priest of God Most High. He is outside the the line of Levi because Levi hasn't even happened yet. Isaac hasn't even happened yet. And here's Abraham, and he's tithing to him. And he gives him a tenth of the spoils. And what we see comes next is Sodom. The king of Sodom asks him, to basically take some things back with him, for Abram to take things back with him. So let's pick it up here in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. It's the, you have nothing in me. You have no foothold in me. Abram's not looking to engrandize himself in any sort of way here. He is humbled before the Lord. And if you look at what Melchizedek, how he blessed him, he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek, the priest of God most high, this king here in this region, representing God there, says you are blessed. And remember, it is God that gave you favor to defeat those armies just now. Everything is because of him. And Abram doesn't need anything else. He gives it all back away. He gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek because that was the increase. And then he gave it all back away and says, there's there's nothing in me. And I love what happens next. In 15, Genesis 15, we find this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, 
your very great reward. Abram doesn't have a king. When God says, I am your shield, it's the I am your king. He's honoring him in that moment right there for what he had just done. He says, I have nothing in the rest of you. This is all from God most high. He's the one who's blessed me. He's who I'm walking in. And then we see God showing right there, don't be afraid. I am your shield. He'd just proven it to him in a major way. I think when we consider that interaction there with Melchizedek, recognizing that he is the priest of God Most High, others have pointed out, you read some various commentaries and whatnot, that this Melchizedek almost stops Abram from coming to a place where he thinks himself is really big. He had just defeated these armies, he could have gone to a prideful place. But the priest comes out and blesses him and blesses God and reminds him all this increase came from God. And we see then as he's approached by the one who would try to grandize himself, try to have a foothold in there, he just eliminates it all. And, oh man, how cool is it that he comes with the bread and the wine for him? I mean, these are all types and shadows of what we are living in now today. This man of faith is in this situation, and God God covers him with the blood. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Who is Melchizedek? We don't know. We don't know. There are some thoughts out there. There's actually some common, commonly held thoughts by uh, several ancient uh, Jewish authors that Melchizedek could be Shem. And if you look at it mathematically, it could be Shem. Because he lives for 500 years after the flood. This is only like 300 and some odd years after that. Uh, it could be Shem. But certainly it is someone who has a priesthood that is outside of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's taking place there in Canaan. And it's taking place at the location where God's going to build his temple. It's where he's going to establish his kingdom. It's, it might be Shem. It might not be. But regardless, we find that there's somebody who is more ancient and in a greater position of authority than Abram that is blessing him in that place. That's a powerful thing for the promise of God towards his people that is going to resonate well beyond Abraham's life. And he, Melchizedek, is this type and shadow of Christ. He's even a type and shadow of David, who comes on scene there, like we talked about as he comes in as the king who also performs priestly duties as he's bringing the presence of God there into Jerusalem, establishing firmly that the presence of God needs a prominent place in the life of his people. And David establishes ordinances and structures to where there's 24-7 prayer and praise ministering before the Ark of the Covenant in that place. I was reading a book by Bill Johnson recently, and he talking, it's called uh, Hosting the Presence, and he, he speaks in there about um, that's something that I hadn't quite made the connection on, but it, it really it lit me up. Because he talks about 
at that time, when David had the ark there, prior to the temple being constructed by Solomon, which we spoke about, you'll recall, sacrifices were not made at the tabernacle. At that, that tent that David had established there. Sacrifices were taking place at Gibeon at that place, animal sacrifices. What was taking place before the Ark of the Covenant was praise and worship and prayer. We're living in a time now where we don't do animal sacrifices, but we come before the presence of the Lord in praise and worship and prayer. David was living ahead of his time. He was drawing on a reality that was coming and it came into play in an Old Testament time. It was, it's almost like it passed through that filter of what was available in that, in that moment. But he was drawing on a future reality because he was also prophetic. He was a king, he was a priest, and he was a prophet. And he was drawing that heavenly reality into that time. And again, he is the one, when we say, that Jesus, son of David... He comes through that line that God established. All right, let's go back now into Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to pick this up again in verse 11. Okay, so here's where it talks about Jesus being like Melchizedek. So we've, we've read about Melchizedek, the uh, significance of him. We've actually now gone back and we've read that, that passage there to see what actually took place there? Now let's talk about how Jesus is like Melchizedek. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change in the law. Remember, the message here in Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's superior. So there's a, there's a shift we're talking about. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus is not a Levite. That's important. Who is it that can carry the presence of God? The Levites, right? In the, in the context of Old Testament Israel, who carries the presence of God? The Levites do. If anybody else tries, they die. Plain and simple. If anybody else tries to, they die. But the issue isn't the Levites. Ultimately, it comes down to the priest. This is, this is the fuller reality here. The Levites were the priests in that covenant. But the issue really is, as Bill Johnson says it, only priests carry his presence. Period. That was true then, it's true today. Only priests are authorized to carry the presence of God. Period. In the old, the old covenant, it was the Levites. But we have a new covenant. So it wasn't just that Levites could do it, it was that priests could. And this is the fuller reality. And what we have said is more, even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, 
one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Because if the priesthood changes, the law changes. The covenant changes. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Here's what we understood. Jesus comes and superimposes all that, canceling this whole thing out. And he says, this is the real thing. And it is now established forever. The old thing was just a sign pointing to the real thing, and that is the person of Jesus and what he has done. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's a king and he is a priest. He is the sacrifice and he does that in the ultimate true temple. The old temple was a type and shadow. It had a pattern that was established based on what was in heaven. But Jesus entered by the perfect way, not bringing someone else's blood in there. He brought his own blood. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. There is no other way. There is no other way for our sins to be forgiven other than for Jesus to have done what he did. And when he established what he established, everything else gets canceled out. Now, this is an amazing reality. But Jesus is the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Are there other priests in the order of Melchizedek? Just look around. Look around the room. It seems to me that you're in Christ, right? 
and God has called you to be kings and priests, you're a royal priesthood. That's not Levitical. The Spirit of Christ is in you. He is a priest forever, the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you are called into his order. Let it sink in. This isn't just about come to Jesus, go to heaven when you die. As good as that is, because that is an incredible miracle, that's not something that we should ever take lightly. But there is an important reality and a significant reality of the fact that you are here and you are in Christ and he is in you. We did it last week, but let's go here again. 1 Peter 2. Starting in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, now to you who believe, you who believe, you who believe, everyone who believes, this isn't just to those that Peter was writing to there. He's writing to all who will believe. This stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you who believe, you who obey, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a design and a goal and a destiny that God had laid into the history of his people the desire for him to have a royal priesthood and a holy nation of priests was something that he was working towards and even offered to Moses and the nation of Israel at that point in time when they came out of Egypt. We're living in the fulfillment of that. It's always been in God's heart to have sons who represent him. Don't get caught up on the male-female there. To have sons who represent him. To have kings and priests. A whole nation of them. Not just a select grouping of people. Pastors are not the only kings and priests in the earth. 
They are kings and priests who are fulfilling the role of pastors. There are children's workers who are kings and priests. There are people who flip burgers who are kings and priests. There are children in and among us who are kings and priests. This is God's design. This is the reality. This is an ongoing reality that's been taking place now for 2,000 years. Kings and priests. This is God's idea. Let's go back to Exodus 19, just so you can see where God was talking about this to the nation of Israel. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. This is when Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And God says this to him. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him, called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Come on. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. This is God's heart. He wants a people who are set apart wholly unto him. Where when the world looks at them, they see him. This has always been his desire. When he walked with Adam in the cool of the day, he's teaching his son what it means to rule the place he gave him to rule. Adam dropped the ball. But there's a last Adam. Who's a king and a priest and reestablishes a new order that we are all called to live in and inhabit. Your kings and your priests. Go to Revelation chapter 1. We've been in Genesis, we've been in Exodus. We've been in Hebrews. We've been in Peter. We're now in Revelation chapter 1. John, this is verse 4. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Hallelujah. And from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. The firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a what? Kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. been from one end of the book to the other today. 
has always been God's desire for the reality of what we are living in now, to have a kingdom, a holy nation, kings and priests. Hopefully, as we've been reading today, you've been highlighting these things, underlining them, marking them, putting some notes in the margins, because the enemy will always try to attack you and tell you you're less than, you're not worthy of any of this stuff. The fact of the matter is, you aren't worthy of any of this stuff. God chose you. And he sent his son to purchase you. So that you would host his presence. See, we are kings and we are priests, but we are also the temple. You're not just flesh and blood. This is your tent. While we're living, it's going to get ratty. Starts to get looser. Right? The tent poles start to get a little bit more frail. This is housing your spirit. Those who are born of flesh are flesh, but those who are born of spirit are spirit. You are spirit. You have a body. It's your vehicle. Treat it well. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church at large on the earth at any given time is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to take that very seriously. We're not to allow other things in to mix with the temple of the Holy Spirit. Talks about that. Let's go into 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're running all over the place today. We're running out of time. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. In the Old Testament, when the temple was constructed, it was meant to look like the pattern that was seen in heaven of the real temple. But remember, God said to to David, he said, All these years I've been with you and with my people, I've never asked for you to build me a home. But I'm I'm going to allow you to do that. But God's design was to dwell amongst his people and is in his people. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a mobile temple. You're also living stones. And he talks about how he's constructing his house with you. You are the house of God. Let's go forward to chapter 6, 19 and 20. Now this is a part that's talking about sexual immorality and the importance for us to flee from sexual immorality because our bodies are not our own and God doesn't want his temple defiled. If you've been caught in sexual immorality, there is freedom for you. There is forgiveness. 
God is very serious about how he does not want us in sexual immorality. He says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is a mobile temple of the Holy Spirit. It's to be kept pure. It's not going to be perfect, but we are to keep ourselves pure. We are to humble ourselves before the Lord. If we go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We find more about this. Okay. This is uh, verse 14 and following through 7 1. <clears throat> Paul tells them this Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? The answer is nothing. They have nothing in common. Or what does fellowship, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Which is another word name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? None. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Does that mean that we shelter ourselves from unbelievers? Does that mean that we refuse to touch those who are unclean? No. Does that mean that we should partner with the world in everything that it's doing? No. No, we are to carry light into darkness. How will people know about Christ if we don't come and speak about him? How are they going to encounter the presence of God that we carry unless we go to the dark places? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We are set apart. And we have the individual responsibility to keep our hearts pure before him. He's the one who washes our consciences clean. Our job is to partner with him in that process, to yield ourselves to him. 
not just for our own benefit. We are priests of the Most High God. You are a priest of the Most High God. You have a duty and a responsibility to keep the temple clean, to carry his presence, to be mindful of his presence, to host his presence well. When the Spirit of God confronts you because there's something out of order in your life, your duty and responsibility and the opportunity that you have is to humble yourself before him, to repent, and then continue to move forward towards him, in him. Remember, as Pastor Bill says, only priests carry his presence, period. You are the priests of the Most High God. You have been called to his presence, This is cutting out. It's okay. So this one. You have been called to carry his presence in your hour, in your time. We collectively have been called to carry his presence in our hour, in our time, here in this location. There are other kings and priests in our community. We're to bless them. We're to work with them. Or to partner with them to host the presence of the Lord. To have unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To represent God here in this day and in this time. So that others who are walking in darkness right now will be brought to the light and become kings and priests of the Most High God. That Jesus' name would be lifted high and that God our Father would be glorified. And the works of darkness would be destroyed. We are to do that until he returns. That's the mission. That's the mission. When we get off mission, we get in trouble. And then our loving Father says, repent and move forward in me. Would you stand? Do you have a word? We've got a word this morning. Rhonda's going to share it with us. So uh, someone saw this picture. I saw two people standing, facing each other. One had their hands around the other's neck, trying to choke them. They were the same person, though. One was the past version, and the other was the present version. When the present version cried out, Jesus, help me, then the Lord stepped in and broke the stranglehold. So what I would say to that, if you feel that you're in a struggle, a wrestling match between the old version of you and the new version of you, It's important that you don't come under the lie that's embedded in that. The truth is, you were made a completely new creation in Christ. Therefore, you have authority over the old habits, the old pieces, 
because you're a new creation. There's not an equal stranglehold there. You're the victor because he made you the victor. It came with the whole piece of making you a new creation. This is a good reminder to come in agreement with the truth when we're facing the things in ourself that we want to conquer and no longer have walked with, no longer accompany us in who we are. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's a promise to us. And what we're talking about here today is your identity as a king and priest of the Most High God. You have authority and you have power over that because Christ has given it to you. He's already put that old man to death. And you're living in a new reality. Don't speak to a dead man. Don't speak to it. Don't try to give life to something that's dead. It's dead. If you've not yet been baptized, you need to be baptized. Because when you're baptized, it's not just a ritual that we go through. It is actually a spiritual declaration to the heavenlies because there is an unseen realm here, folks, that you have been put to death and who has come up is a new creation. And that person that the enemy is referencing to is dead and gone and buried. You're living in new life. So if you've not yet been baptized, there's a spiritual dynamic there that can help you in this wrestling match. You understand? Okay. We're going to do communion right now, too. So if you have your elements with you, peel that open. You know, we spoke about when Abram was coming back. He's, he's heading from the north on south into Hebron, bringing with him all the spoils. And the king of righteousness, the king of peace, comes out to meet him there along the way, protect his heart from what is about to take place, the temptation that's about to come, and he brings to him bread and wine. Does anybody not have bread and wine? They, they need it? Raise your hands high. Okay. He brings to him bread and wine. Yes, it is to refresh him, but God doesn't miss a beat in the story that he tells throughout Scripture. It's amazing. It's a type and shadow. But we're living in the reality now. This bread represents his body that was broken for you. We know his flesh was torn for you. We're reminded that it is by his stripes that we are healed. Does anybody need healing in their body today for anything? Just raise your hand. All right. We're about to take communion. We're celebrating the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, that by his stripes we are healed. There's just as much access in this moment for healing as there is in any other time. The presence of the Lord here is in the house. And we're, we're going to drink this 
wine, this grape juice, right? Representing his blood, which is a new covenant, which he carried into the most holy place for us. And we now get to go boldly before that throne of grace. Priests are the ones that go before the throne of grace, before that mercy seat. Listen, the language is specific for us. We get to boldly go before his throne of grace now because the veil was torn, his flesh was torn, giving us access. So as we take this today, this isn't a snack. This isn't just grape juice and a wafer. We are remembering the testimony of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and the reality that we live in now. You are a king and priest coming before the Lord right now with the body of Christ taking the representation of his body broken and his blood poured out for us. So Jesus, right now, we thank you for the price you paid. We thank you, Lord, that you went to the cross for us. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that it is by your stripes that we are healed. We thank you that we've received forgiveness of sins. We thank you and we praise you, Jesus, the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We thank you that we are heirs, co-heirs with you to the promises of God. We thank you right now that we are the heirs of salvation. We thank you that we are the sons of God that that creation has been groaning for. We thank you that we have a new reality that we are living in. We thank you today for your healing. And right now, Lord Jesus, we just release your spirit of healing over this house right now. Whether people are in this room or they're at home, right right now, Lord, that your spirit would come touch them and bring healing to them right now. We thank you for the blood of the new covenant that you carried into that most holy place the heavenly reality, once for all time. We celebrate that here today. And Lord, we are humbly yielded to you as your body here, represented here in the earth. Let us fully step into what it means to be kings and priests. Let us live life in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called here in this day, in this hour. Let us bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Take and eat and drink in the name of Jesus. This next week, as I shared earlier, is a week where we have opportunities to get into the presence of the Lord together. And the presence of the Lord is among us here this morning. So I don't want to diminish that in our minds in any form or fashion. But I encourage you and I invite you to come Wednesday night, 6 p.m., for a pursuit night. It's pursuit of what? The presence of the Lord. We are pursuing His presence. We have opportunity on this side of eternity to pursue Him. When we're in heaven, we're there. But while we're here, we have the opportunity to learn to pursue him together and to host his presence here in this place. It's not only for our benefit. Remember, we are operating in an unseen realm. When the people of God come together and his presence shows up here, it spills over and leaks out and it becomes a beacon in this, in this area. People are affected by the presence of God that is hosted here and other locations where his body is meeting here in this region and around the world. That is a reality. 
Come join us. It is important for you as a king and a priest to become accustomed and aware to what the presence of God feels like for you. Because you need to know the difference between his spirit and any other spirit. You need to know when it is that he showed up and suddenly he's in the room and your antenna goes up and says, what do you want to do right now, Lord? Because you're here. You need to become accustomed and aware to that, of that. These are opportunities for that to happen. If you can't make it Wednesday night, come next Sunday. We're having an encounter service. I anticipate God is going to show up in a big way. He's been stirring us as a people. He's been laying things in. It's like making, you build a bonfire. What do you do? You stack all that lumber up together, right? And it sits there for a while. And all of a sudden, it gets touched and it goes up in flame. I feel like he's been just laying into us deeply and richly over this past month and a half. I'm coming with expectancy this next Sunday to see him do something. So I would encourage you to as well. I'm going to bless you and dismiss you right now. So, Father, I just thank you for your people. I thank you for these kings and these priests, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that today we have been opened or reminded to a new understanding of who it is that we are, the reality of who we are, Lord, in you. Lord, I ask that you would teach us more and more how to live in that reality, how to experience that reality, how to express that reality to those who are around us. Lord, I ask that you would give us confidence and boldness in our, our, our identity in you. I bless your people right now, Lord. I ask that a hunger for your word would just consume them right now, Lord, that we would find ourselves in you and we would find you in your word You, Jesus, speaking to us, that rhema in that moment, speaking into our lives the things that we need installed in us. Lord, I ask right now that you would release power as we come to you, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, Lord, that we would see signs and wonders following us, Lord. I ask for bold faith. I ask for bold faith for your people right now, Lord. Lord, that those that are in our spheres of influence would begin to recognize a shift in us, Lord, that you would bring about healing and deliverance for those that are around us, Lord. I ask that you would empower your people, Lord, to live fully in what you have for them. Lord, I ask that we would speak encouragement and blessings and comfort to one another. Lord, that we would be joyful and be glad in a time of sorrow and depression, Lord, that you would come in and give us a wellspring of joy in our lives. Lord, that we would live in thanksgiving in praise, Lord Jesus. Lord, that we would see an outpouring of your Spirit among us, Lord. And I ask, Father, that you bring healings, 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 Lord, dramatic healings, deliverances, Lord Jesus, salvations for those, Lord, who have been long running from you. I ask right now, Lord, for you to touch your people. Lord, give us dreams. Speak to us in quiet times, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. You are released. God bless you. Yes, sir. Yes. Amen. Welcome, welcome among us. We're glad to have you guys here today.